Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Annika Nordquist. I'm incredibly excited about today's episode with Dr. Spencer Clavin, who's the associate editor at the Claremont Review of Books and features editor at The American Mind. He has a PhD in classics from Oxford and is the host of a really great podcast, Young Heretics, which goes through the great works of the Western tradition. Today, we're going to discuss Spencer's recent book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. One of the really fun things about this interview is that both Spencer and I have a shared background in classics, but on the flip side, uh, sometimes when we're discussing some ancient philosophies during the episode, we maybe didn't fully explain as much as we should have. So for context, we discussed these two competing ancient philosophies, Stoicism and Epicureanism. And basically, Stoicism is a philosophy that encouraged being Stoic, rolling with the punches, not letting things bother you, exercising a lot of discipline, whereas Epicureanism encouraged enjoying pleasure because life is short. Um, And so there's more information about both of those in the show notes, but one of the things we discuss in this episode is kind of the surprising resurgence and second life of both of those ideas that competed with each other in the ancient world. And so finally, we have one really major announcement, which is that we're going to begin a partnership with a new podcasting platform, the New Books Network, which we're super excited about. It's going to be a really great resource. This won't affect your listening at all if you follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of our other platforms, except that starting soon, we're going to be reposting one episode a day. Um, And so you're going to be seeing a lot of old content refreshed and new again. So while we apologize for any inconvenience, uh, we do hope that at least some of you are going to take the opportunity to revisit some of the old episodes we've had with my predecessor, Nino Scalia. Uh, I want to assure you that to clear up any confusion, we are still going to be posting new content on the same schedule every other Tuesday. So with no further ado, I really hope you enjoy this discussion. Spencer, welcome to the show. Annika, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I want to start off uh, by talking a little bit about your broader project here. So because your book, you've written, I mean, quite literally a how-to book, How to Save the West, (laughs) um, which is something that not a lot of academics, uh, if they have any interest in doing, I think are even very capable of, you know, your project is very accessible, uh, but it's also very wide ranging. Um, There's just not that many people who, for instance, can talk about kind of both Homer and Isaiah, which is something that that you very much do. So I think kind of on the one hand, there would be some people who would probably say like, oh, you have a PhD, you know, why are you writing this kind of book? And on the other hand, you know, the rejoinder would be, well, maybe what's wrong with the academy that they're not trying to make some of this stuff accessible. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, the utility of the broader project that you're working on. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of framing the question. You know, and the answer is kind of personal for me. I mean, I grew up in a house surrounded, filled with books, and I was so lucky in that way. And I didn't know how lucky I was. I mean, it took me a while to even learn that that wasn't normal, you know, to have these shelves everywhere just filled with books. And what I gradually realized as a kid is that to be surrounded with books is to be surrounded with friends. And, you know, it's very, very easy to look at this stuff and think of it as kind of dusty tomes on a shelf, or as you kind of indicate as uh, material for PhD theses and not much else. And that's never what it was to me, even though I did end up going to grad school and I did really love the time that I spent in the academy. I think there's a real role for the university in a healthy, functioning civilization. All of that is absolutely true. But I also noticed that there was this thing happening in the wake of the digital revolution, just this sea change in information technology that we've been living through. And everybody currently alive has a slightly different relationship to this change because we were born at different times. And whatever else, though, we all, I think, feel as if our whole relationship to one another and to the world and to uh, the cosmos has been altered or threatened or shifted. And that created this sense in people around me that I knew that sort of all the questions were 
new, that it was the first time we were facing any of these issues. Mm. And maybe the stuff that I was working on was interesting and fun, but it didn't really have anything to say. And so actually that divide you're describing is on both sides of this sort of academy, town and gown divide. On the one hand, you get academics who think there's no point in talking to the masses. And then on the other hand, you get people who think, well, you hoity-toity kind of pointy hat guy, what are you doing, you know, trying to talk about politics? And I think that both of those views are kind of half half true and, and, and wrong, wrong-headed, you know. Um, <laughs> the reality is that because our tech has unsettled us in such profound ways, it has forced us to ask really fundamental questions that we haven't had to ask in a serious manner for some time. And one thing I wanted to do with this book is to show people really, you know, of, of any kind of educational level, but especially people just out there in the world who think of the academy maybe as a hostile force or an inaccessible place. Um, I wanted to show people that they are currently wrestling with questions that have been on the forefront of the minds of great thinkers for generations, for as long as human beings have been on this planet. And the great gift of that is that we're not alone. These are not sort of the first time these questions have ever occurred, um, and we don't have to face them on our own. You know, the the great texts of the tradition can be difficult; they can be imposing. Uh, but I wrote the book because I wanted people to have a little inroad uh, and an and an ownership over these texts to understand that fundamentally they're about being excellent at being human, and I think we really need that now more than ever. Yeah, and I really want to talk to you more about the tech side of this because that was a really interesting perspective that you brought into the book. Uh, But before going there, I I want to read a very short quip that you had kind of in the introduction of your book that I think is so good. Uh, You said the narrative that old books are worthless is designed to keep you from discovering that they are not. So talk to me a little bit about, I mean, what is that narrative? What's the conspiracy? You know, how did people come to think that? Man, it does a, an author's heart such good when a reader <laughs> picks out a favorite line. I mean, I, it's like, you know, sometimes you're writing and you feel really satisfied, you know. Um, and, and I think, you know, I was sort of pondering this idea, which has become common currency, um, that began as sort of a, a maybe a radical proposition, but is now very much in the public mind that talking about the West at all is to engage in a kind of like chauvinist project of some kind or another. You, you know, you're basically, it's a dog whistle for racism or it's a sort of sexist project because these guys are mostly men that we're reading or just it's kind of an antiquarian project that these, you're looking back to these primitive people. And all of those opinions, it suddenly occurred to me, are opinions that can only be sustained by studiously ignoring the actual (laughs) texts that they are about, you know, you have to really not read these books in order to feel that way and think that way about them. And it occurred to me that the sort of flip side of that truth is that telling people these nasty things about these books prevents them from ever feeling like they have to go and check it out for themselves. Because if, you know, Aristotle or Plato or even Nietzsche or Aquinas is just a kind of dumb old racist white guy or however you want to put it, um, then you are never forced to confront these texts face to face and say, well, what do I really believe about these challenging or exciting ideas in here? Um, And this is where I think the kind of hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go project. uh, (laughs) Too close to home. Too close to home. uh, (laughs) I know. Yeah. I know I'm talking to a Stanford grad, uh, but it's in the book. So we might as well breach the talk about the elephant in the room, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is where that project, I just, I, I really think it's a fundamentally dishonest one. And I think it has uh, cheated people out of a very rich inheritance that could be of use to them. Yeah, absolutely. So I, it's funny, I was reading your book at around the same time like the exact same time, I tend to read multiple books at once, uh, as That Hideous Strength by C.S. Lewis, which is a book I know you've also talked about. Um, And because I read them at the same time, I'm struggling to remember whether it was you who used this word or him or both of you. But he... (laughs) 
key slash you use this great word scientism um, to, to talk about this, you know, this idea that we're pushing forward and science is going to solve all this. And, you know, we don't need kind of the great books of the past. And of course, in Lewis's day, a lot of that kind of centered on eugenics and, and things like that. And now we have, you know, like the metaverse and, and all this other profusion rather than kind of a biological push forward. It's more of a kind of technical computer science based push mm. forward. So I'm wondering if you could talk um, a little bit to that. I mean, you dwell a lot in your book on, you know, the new atheist type of strain within that. Uh, but talk about how that's like affected how we view the West. Mm, yeah. You know, at the opening of the body crisis section of the book, I think there is a quote from that hideous strength because what a magnificent novel that is. I mean, just so delicately and well observed and so prescient because he was really looking into the heart. I mean, he's doing the same thing that I humbly hope that I'm trying to do, which is to look underneath the skin of the news cycle, right? And sort of say, what's the big question that's sort of operative here. And scientism is a really useful word. I, I know I do use it in the book. I, I expect that Lewis would have been one to use it or a similar word as well. Um, and and it, it's helpful to me because it allows a way to carve out some conceptual space for what has happened to science as a cudgel, like what has done, what has been done to turn one of the gifts of mankind, I mean, natural philosophy, which is what we would have called it in you know, antiquity, um, the examination of nature, the exploration of what can be known but to the mind of man in nature. Um, this is a wonderful endeavor. And it's uh, you see a lot of kind of anti-science talk these days by people who feel abused by science. And I, I really get that. But I think the preciser term for what we're actually reacting against is scientism, which I would define as the philosophical proposition that physical science gives a complete and exhaustive description of reality. Um, so in science, we, we examine certain questions. I raised this in the religion uh, section of the book. We examine certain questions in science and we do our level best to exclude other questions from view. That's the whole point of the method in some ways. And it's some Sometimes people act as if by doing that, we've answered those other questions, questions like, why should we do what we what we do? What are our sort of ethical imperatives or what's the purpose of mankind? Um, and at its extreme, you know, this leads to a really reductive idea about the world, which is expressed by a quote in, in the book uh, from paleontologist G.G. Simpson to the effect that every good answer to the questions of life was basically raised and and proposed after Charles Darwin. Uh, once evolution was figured out, then everybody else became obsolete. Aristotle, Aquinas, Muhammad, Plato, whatever. I mean, Western thinker, non-Western thinker, you name it. It's just all obsolete because science has replaced it all. And I think that that's where you, you start to see the truly pernicious effects of scientism because, of course, science hasn't made those questions obsolete. It hasn't made those thinkers obsolete. And by excluding them from view, all it has done is put a blinder over one half of our vision. So we do these things without knowing why we do them. Like we worship at the altar of science. We say the science, trust the science. Dr. Fauci represents the science. I mean, these are statements of clerical authority. And in the crisis of religion section of the book, I argue that really what, it, what this is, is just acting out the religious impulse in the only way we know how, because we think that the world can be reduced to matter and it just can't. I want to ask a little bit more about kind of the, the new atheism portion of it, um, because, I mean, a lot of people have observed that, that it kind of became a religion unto itself. But it seems to me that it's sort of an interesting phase in its history, that kind of intense new atheism, because there has in, in its way also been pushback on it from the extreme left and a lot of. Yep small c conservatives, I guess, people who are hoping to conserve are now saying like, no, go back to this sort of simpler, more secular time. So I, mm. I guess what, what's your read on kind of this current state of affairs on how that's affected us in our discourse? That's super perceptive. I mean, I I went back to Dawkins primarily, Richard Dawkins in the book, and I went back for a kind of an, a reason that is now uh, a surprising reason. I, I, I wanted to talk in the book about mimesis, about the Greek concept of replication and imitation. And I thought, what's the 
place where mimesis is most present to the public mind? Well, it's memes, right? The word meme is a uh, sort of a, you know, a portmanteau. It's, uh, you know, it's a calc, let's say, uh, a a little uh, modern neologism developed out of the Greek word mimema, meaning a replicated thing. And so this idea that we go online and you see like the success kid or you see the distracted boyfriend of the Wojak and they're all like constantly being reproduced. This derives at a distance from Dawkins's idea of the meme, which is that evolution, uh, which takes place at the you know genetic level, the biological level, is also a template and a pattern that we can see at work at the cultural level. And just as genes are the engine of biological evolution, memes are the engine of cultural evolution. So that's kind of why I ended up in the whole New Atheist uh, archives <laughs> to begin with. And it's really funny because I do remember thinking as I was working through it, like, geez, this stuff is almost outdated now. You know, like it, it feels, it felt so current even when I was in college and now it feels really dusty. And why is that? And I think the answer is that like a lot of radical propositions, a lot of revolutionary propositions, the new atheist idea has outstripped its founders and gone, it's taken on a life of its own and gone to places that they never intended. And the place where this becomes really apparent in the selfish gene is when Dawkins starts talking about, you know, why should we still have moral societies yeah. if all we really are is evolution, products of evolution? And he has no answer to that question. He kind of makes some, he mouths some answers, but I, I show in the book, I think that they're, they're really inadequate. And um, that is why this whole, you know, the idea that atheism and enlightenment were identical and that mm. both were going to just increase um, is why this whole thing has taken on a head of steam that the people who initially started the train want to get off it now. And so that's why you're saying, yeah, it gets, it gets pushed back from the left and the right uh, for different reasons. But fundamentally, I think it's taken on a religious character as it, it couldn't help but do because there was nowhere else for it to turn to derive the moral universe. Yeah. And I want to definitely talk more about memes, but let's let's address this really quickly, because I think a lot of mm. people do think a lot about this and struggle with it. Like at this juncture, I think in part due to the influence of a lot of these new atheist types, it's kind of talked of as though, you know, the Greeks, for instance, the Greek philosophers were totally secular, kind of all the great, you know, thinkers throughout history were, were totally secular. And yeah. I've studied this a lot. I know that you have too. talk to me a little bit about that. Is is that true? <laughs> uh, is it true? No. Short answer, no. Um, uh, but actually, you know, we were emailing a little bit before we started talking about the fact that you are a scholar of Plato's Timaeus, which yeah. is one of my absolute favorite texts. And that is a great inroad, I think, for us to think about this, because I mentioned in the introduction to the book that different texts become urgent at different times. So even though there there is a canon, there is a tradition, you know, certain books, I think, need to be read by anybody that wants to call himself or herself an educated person. Um, but if you went to, uh, you know, a university as a in, in the medieval era, uh, you would have a very different kind of baseline must-read curriculum than we have now. And one of the texts that would have been front of mind, that is less front of mind now, is, is Timaeus, this kind of literary sequel to The Republic. You don't need me to talk about, to tell you what it is, but maybe the listeners, the listeners would like, uh, okay. yeah, right. I'm not defending the fact that I went in so deep on this. <laughs> Please continue. No, yeah, right. I mean, well, I mean, it's interesting because like, I think you may, you may be kind of on a cutting edge there. Like it might, we might live to see the Timaeus become a little bit more interesting. Uh, important in the curriculum because it deals with questions of cosmology. And, you know, the, the, the professors that put the Republic at the center of the curriculum were up against a very different set of challenges having to do with the Cold War and, you know, mm. state formation and all of these. And then the Republic becomes super urgent. But um, we are up against this era of technology and also of kind of space exploration. And suddenly Timaeus is is really urgent. Um, and one of the things that I think it, it helps us to recover is there's kind of two modes for maybe like American conservatives think of the world as divided into two literary camps. There's the, uh, the you know, the, the revelation tradition of scripture 
which contains truth about the one God. And then there is pagan literature, which might have all sorts of other uses, but which at a religious level is just polytheist, is kind of primitive in this way. And Timaeus is kind of, for me, the apogee of a tradition which really flies in the face of that and shows that from very early on, Greek thinkers um, not only were religious and had ideas about the world of the spirit, but were um, understood the the appeal of monotheism and in many cases were leaning in a monotheist direction because of the problems that are raised in a dialogue like Plato's Euthyphro, for instance. And so in Timaeus, you get this picture which will become very important for medieval cosmology of the world as an organism shaped by one demiurge, but with kind of subsidiary gods, or we might now call them angels who kind of govern the different spheres. Um, and this was not just a, an article of belief for a lot of early scientists. It was a motivating concept for a lot of early scientists. I mean, Johannes Kepler is the greatest example of this, the guy who discovered elliptical orbits, you know, in the in the planets. But, you know, uh, Copernicus, Galileo, these folks that are now thought of as the great kind of, you know, the victors of science against religion, right? The nasty church was trying to shut down science. Um, this is crystallized into this narrative that's just totally false. I mean, the, the disputes over heliocentrism, for instance, insofar as there were disputes, were intra-religious disputes about how the heavens reveal the glory of God. And what I think I show in the book is that if you take that pillar away, it actually stops making sense altogether. So we think that we've just purified science by taking God out of it. But the more we go down this path, the more we realize that science itself is, is starting to lose its kind of logical coherence um, because of its refusal or the refusal of some sort of scientific people to accept a concept of mind, of, of prime, prime mover or primary mind, um, which is coming back in a big way. And there are people who've written about this, but this is all over the book. Yeah, you can't you can't really make sense of it without God. Yeah. Well, can you give me a specific example of that? What What's an issue where taking yeah. God out of a picture has just muddied the water? Well, uh, the one I use in the book most directly is the multiverse, the concept yeah, of the multiverse. Yeah. And um, this has been a fixation of mine. And I was glad to kind of find a way in the book to address it because it, multiversal ideas are very, very popular right now. They're not just kind of in vogue among theoretical physicists, but they are also a governing narrative mechanism in a lot of our pop art. I talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is no longer a universe and is now a multiverse very expressly. Um, and there are other, you know, big movies, everything, everywhere, all at once that kind of toy around with this concept. And when you actually look at the history of this idea, you find that the whole thing basically originates, or at least a primary driver behind it, is the effort to find a way out of a divine mind. Because you start to get this, these, these discoveries like you know, the constants, the constants of kind of uh, cosmological physics, the configuration of mass and energy at the beginning of the universe, the particular amount of force within with which certain particles attract one another. The list goes on of just these numbers that they don't have to be the numbers that they are. It's not like they're mathematically necessary. And yet they exist exactly in this tiny region that sustains and supports conscious life. And at this point, if you are a committed atheist, that is, if you're pre committed to the idea of no kind of design in, in nature, um, I would imagine you start to get a little hot under the collar because things are starting to look not so good. And so there are all of these theories on the table of sort of how could we avoid positing that because we've married the idea of science to the idea of full-scale atheism. Mm. And this is where you end up with like string inflationary cosmology, which for all of it, whatever other virtues it may have is very much an article of faith. I mean, it relies on all sorts of concepts that cannot be observed, can't be subjected to experiment. Um, this idea that we are just in one of innumerable universes that exist when uh, string configurations decay and then sort of reconstitute and form bubble universes. Um, it's like monkeys at a typewriter, basically. It's just saying, you know, the reason our universe looks designed is because it's the one accidental universe among innumerable accidental universes that happens. And again, not only have we departed from science, we've also not answered the question because who built the universe building machine, right, um, that ended up pretty... But anyway, I mean, this is just one example of the way, you know, we're getting off the tangent, but this is kind of like, you know, one example of how the whole thing starts to fall apart. Yeah, no, super interesting. And I want to make the transition then, I guess, from talking about multiverse to talking about metaverse, which is something that you talk very compellingly about in your book. And you make this really 
fascinating comparison that it just feels so obvious now that I've read it, but it never would have occurred to me before, um, between the metaverse and Plato's cave. Um, so talk to me, explain to our listeners, like kind of what, what comparison you were drawing there. Sure. Yeah. So the uh, Plato's cave section of the book kind of comes up as I'm talking about the reality crisis, as yeah. I call it, the kind of, is there true or false? Is there real or unreal? And obviously virtual reality raises these questions in this really profound way. You know, Facebook turns into meta and the whole idea is that now we're going to kind of operate in this digital space, this latent reality that doesn't really correspond to our physical selves. Um, you start to ask these questions, well, what is really real and should we want anything to be real or not? And this is why I think it's interesting to recover Plato's cave as the original virtual reality dystopia. And, you know, we have so many virtual reality dystopias now to choose from. You can watch The Matrix, you can read Snow Crash, you can watch even kind of WALL-E has these themes in it from Pixar. Um, but in Plato, the, the kicker is, you know, the world is already virtual reality. We're already living in the metaverse, essentially. Um, and the, the whole game, the whole trick or, or project of philosophy is to find your way out, to see your way to the thing which remains true, no matter who decides otherwise, no matter what shadows the uh, puppeteers throw on the wall, no matter what the actors say at the Oscars, no matter what the sophists say in the assembly, um, there are some things which remain true and false, things having to do, for instance, with moral virtue, right, with excellence. Um, and unless that's true, I argue in the book, uh, then nothing really can be held stable. And usually proposals to dissolve those boundaries between real and unreal uh, begin with glittering promises of freedom and end in bloodshed and power politics. Yeah. And that's <laughs> illustrated by the history of Athens, but by any number of other things that you can talk about. So yeah, I think, you know, Plato's gave in some very real way is the original metaverse. And the important thing it shows is that if you're in the metaverse, somebody's outside of it. And they're the person with the power, which is something I think we could all stand to remember. Yeah. I mean, one of the really I mean, actually, I'll say the most interesting thing to me about the comparison is that you're not making the argument that, like, we can use Plato's cave to understand the metaverse, but rather that the metaverse actually is, like, the same instinct in everything that Plato was talking about mm. with the cave, which I think is, yeah, it's just such an amazing example of how texts continue to live. Mm, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, it's not like, oh, Plato predicted the metaverse and here's what he says we should do about it. It's that uh, the metaverse actually raises exactly the question that, that Socrates, at least as Plato represents him, was trying to grapple with in his conversations with Parmenides and Heraclitus. And, you know, this is like the big bang of Western philosophy, at least in its kind of pagan sense. Um, and I... I insist throughout the book, and I think this is a great example of it, that this is what digital technology sort of does. It throws us back on these fundamental questions. And it's, that's bad news because it means everything feels very scary and unsettling. But it's also good news because it means suddenly, urgently, these texts that uh, people like you and me love become relevant and important. I want to talk a little bit about um, social media, which is, you know, very relevant mm. to the whole, I guess it's kind of the proto metaverse in some way, yeah. um, social media and mimesis, which we've already touched on a little bit in this conversation, um, because it seems like there's kind of a sense in which we've all now become actors on a stage, um, thanks to apps, you know, like TikTok and things like that. Um, and that, well, I mean, we're sort of already down a direction in which it's been shown that that's very deleterious to mental health and we're kind of pressing the accelerator button on it by hmm. pushing forward things like the metaverse. Um, yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, I guess the, the first kind of part of that is people people know like statistically that there's a link between social media and deleterious mental health effects. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a known statistical fact. Um, but I think that the concept of mimesis can help us understand why that's the case so much better. Yeah. I mean, I think the stats are very helpful, but we don't even need them because we know we've got our experience, right, to tell us that this stuff drains our life force, for lack of a better term. You know, it, you get off these platforms and we all feel as if we've kind of just drained off a little bit of our soul into them. And I think uh, people are becoming more and more aware of this, as you indicate. And the notion that we're all kind of actors on a stage is a 
one, you know, Plato in, in the laws talks about the, the, the theatrocracy, right? Having developed these different ideas about ways of rule, he says, there's one really kind of decayed, pernicious version of, of rule by the many, and that's rule by applause, essentially. Mm. And, um, and, and my Mises, of course, and the stage are very, very closely, tightly interwoven. Um, what Aristotle in the Poetics says about theater, uh, or at least tragedy, is that it represents a kind of refined artistic version of something that we do at a very primal level all the time. Uh, just as we are political animals, meaning that we you know, naturally form communities and make rules about how to live together. So we are also mimetic animals. In fact, we are the most mimetic of all the animals. We are the mimetic uh, uh, let's see, mimetico, mimeticotatoi, right? We are the mimeticist. We are the mimeticist of all animals. Um, and what this means is that we really can't resist or help doing this kind of activity. And that must mean that there's a good version of it, right? I mean, if, the, if we're not doomed to simply become sort of trained seals, you know, there is something noble about uh, mimesis, which is that it brings us into relationship with one another. The fact that when I see you doing something, there's a little part of me that sort of internalizes that and can empathize with you if I if I try and can therefore, you know, empathize with characters on stage, can even write characters that might appear on stage. So this is the engine of all sorts of good things. Um, but of course, uh, anything good can be hacked. Uh, that's one of the, you know, lessons that we're learning. And I think the reason that memes are kind of a, a sign of online creativity, but also a sign of online malaise is that they're, you know, the, the, the good things are also the worst when, when corrupted. And, and with, with mimesis of that kind, of the kind that says everyone around you is sort of perfect and glossed and airbrushed and you are just in this spiral of trying to you know, get a leg up. This is very Girardian, sort of Rene Girard, this thinker that I raise and I, I name in the book. Um, and and there is a healthier version of engagement with this stuff, but it does require understanding that all imitation is imitation of something. And so, if online we're doing all this imitation, uh, we have to ask, right, what is the kind of basis of that imitation? That's the crisis of meaning section of the book. And I would suggest, I think, that starting from embodied life in the real world and understanding mimesis as kind of arising out of that is a saner and healthier way to to deal with these sorts of issues. No, and it's it's also crazy because I mean social media it seems as though to my knowledge anyway was invented very much with mimetic theory like actually at kind of mm, front of mind yeah, and, and yeah. as a result has capitalized on it actually in a very pernicious way. That's right. I mean, they are designed that the, a lot of people make a lot of money um, by exploiting exactly this phenomenon. And the the worst kinds of exploitation are the ones that use what's good about you, or at least what's sort of human about you, uh, to your detriment. So yes, it's very pernicious. Uh, but but it doesn't mean that it's not subjectable to willpower. That's an important thing. I think it's not inevitable. We can actually adopt practices that help us relate better to this tech. Yeah. And I think Gerard actually does. It's frustrating me that I can't remember where he said it, but he actually does talk about um, the link between acting and, um, you know, mental health in terms of mm. mimesis um, in the sense that the act of copying itself um, or the need to, to copy and be copied is somehow linked linked to that. Mm, I, I think yeah. about a lot. Um, it's sort of like a, a weird random classics fact, but that like in Rome, you know, actors and prostitutes were considered kind of an equal social tier. And I, I yep. don't want to like come for all the acting kids and acting kids yeah. out there. But I wonder if there's not total truth, but a grain of truth in that, that there's just something, something about and the fact that we've ultimately democratized acting more than anything else, like because of TikTok. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, this is like, uh, it's funny, uh, that same kind of notion was on my mind as you were mm -hmm. talking. So yeah, I think it's, it's important to kind of get this, get this right. I mean, um, famously, of course, in the Republic, Socrates exiles the poets, right? Yeah. And this is like a controversial part, you know, very kind of explosive and controversial idea and has been since it was written, essentially. Um, Socrates himself expresses a lot of regret about this. He sort of makes a show of being forced into it. For his hand is forced. I love Homer, but we just can't have him around. <laughs> and um, and 
obviously there is an element of this that must be tongue-in-cheek. Many, many uh, books have been written about how much of it is tongue-in-cheek. But the, to me, the fundamental issue at stake is not, you know, how serious he was about exiling poetry, but what kind of poetry was he talking about? And this is where book three becomes, three and four, books three and four become really important. It becomes clear he's talking about the stage. He's talking about what people are going to repeat and take into themselves. And yeah, this idea that like actors are kind of on a same, on a social level along with uh, prostitutes that when the theater troupe comes into town, you sort of lock up your kids because they're just such a bad influence. Like um, I, I, I think there is a, as I say in the book, there is a healthier way to understand uh, art and even acting than Socrates offers us. But the point he's making is to drive to sort of force us to confront the fact that just because something is art doesn't mean it's good. And in fact, um, art, because art is so, can be so ennobling, it can also be very, very pernicious. Um, and we, we probably could stand to recover that uh, just a little bit since we've gone so far in the other direction. I'm, I'm happy you said that. The most recent podcast episode that I did was on beauty, and there's definitely a lot of tension about that mm. topic, like about the the relationship between is art kind of good for its own sake? Is bad art bad uh, because it's not well done or because it you know, has, a, has a moral defect? Can it still be appealing with those moral defects? I mean, in your book, you kind of draw this <laughs> sort of funny contrast um, between Cardi B and Macbeth. <laughs> and the yeah. way that you talk about it is in terms of a realism um, that, that Cardi B isn't like a realistic picture of love. And I actually would, would push back a little bit on that. I would, I personally, okay. I'm curious how you respond to this. I would argue that the issue isn't that Cardi B isn't realistic. I mean, she's not making a claim that this is going to be like a lifelong connection and happiness and marriage and whatever. It's not that mm. it's not realistic. It's that because of mimesis, it might become real if enough people Ooh. listen to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that yeah, is kind of the difference between between that and something like Shakespeare, which is at least somewhat more ennobling. Yeah, I th- I think there's maybe a, like um, Hegelian synthesis yeah. of the <laughs> points that we're making here. Um, so the trio of things that art, in my view, is supposed to do, I take from Cicero's uh, work on rhetoric. And he says there's sort of three effects that a really well-established or constructed piece of rhetoric can have on you. Um, it can moere, it can move you, uh, it can delectare, it can uh, please and delight you, and it can docere, it can instruct you. And what I think must be true is that art does all three of those things in a way that nothing else can. Um, if, if that weren't the case, then there would be no point in doing art. And what's also true, I think it maybe even follows in a certain sense that it must, each of those three functions must be interrelated somehow. Um, and I think the way that they're interrelated is something like, you know, it, it, uh, it delights us because it, uh, it teaches us, it teaches us because it moves us and it moves us because it delights us. Um, and that you create this kind of virtuous circle. And so you're absolutely right that there's a there's kind of a like a directional dimension to art as well as a depictive dimension, and maybe that's where we are talking about this in different ways. Um, I would say that there is a dishonesty inherent in like a Cardi B whom I, I, I raised because like conservatives in the culture war got fixated on Cardi B at one point. And I was sort of saying like, well, why do you hate Cardi B, but you like the Song of Solomon or like another sort of graphic depiction right. of, of erotic love? And I do think the answer has something to do with this is a depiction of of promiscuity um, that kind of occludes certain facts about it from view. Let's put it this way. Um, but there is absolutely a, a dimension which you're identifying, which is that it does that in order to make a certain case for promiscuity. And it's very explicit about that. You know, this is what you should want to do. We should. It's kind of a liberatory project, let's say. Um, so maybe that's the way to reconcile the two things. We're, we're talking about is that it, there is a dishonesty there, but the dishonesty is linked to a, a project, to an attempt to make make something happen. And all art does does both. Does that sort of answer your question? Mm, yeah. And I want to talk a little bit more about kind of the hedonistic 
Hmm. I, I was going to say undercurrent, overcurrent, I guess. <laughs> overcurrent. Current, yeah. Yeah, yeah. current. <laughs> current in this. Um, because, I mean, you made a, a very interesting point in your book as well, um, talking about how we're sort of, you know, in an Epicurean age now. And Epicurus, I'm going to put my cards on the table, is not something I've thought about since, like, reading Horace, you know, in, like, middle school Latin. Um, okay. So the, yeah. Some total of my knowledge on this topic is that Horace is a pig from Epicurus's sty, and, and we're working from there. But um, <laughs> but I'm curious. I mean, it's not as though I think, I mean, I guess one for the listeners, explain what Epicureanism is. Uh, but second, I mean, how did we get to that point? Because I suspect it was not because there was a sudden resurgence of interest in Lucretius that suddenly everyone is subscribing to some of these, you know, what is old is new again views. No, golly, if only, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's like an Epicurean revival I could almost get behind. It's like everybody's yeah, yeah. pouring over de rerum natura in their yeah, yeah. off hours. But no, that's unfortunately, that is not the story that I personally at least want to tell about the yeah. rise of atomism. I mean, you know, uh, Epicurus, for the listeners, uh, who is an inheritor in many ways of the atomism of earlier theorists like Democritus and, and Leucippus, proposes what in antiquity is actually a kind of daring and uh, sort of unusual thesis, um, although it gains a fair bit of traction. This is all part of the Hellenistic turn in, in Greek philosophy that after Aristotle, basically, there's not an, an inheritor to that sort of unitary tradition as, as we see it. Um, and some people would argue that that tradition isn't unitary even at all. But I, I think that from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle, you have this kind of succession. And that in the breakup, the fracture of the Greek-speaking world, which happens politically at that time, you also have a fracture of intellectual life. And the whole Hellenistic era is kind of characterized by competing worldviews and, and attitudes. And it's really not until... Caesar. It's not until kind of Rome over the course of the second and first centuries BC sort of dominates the world that you ever again have a, a governing, a, a philosophy of life that looks like it can explain everything. It looks like it kind of brings it all together. Um, and so it's possible that in that context, it, it is exactly the kind of context where Epicureanism would sound like a really attractive proposition. It's the idea that rather than kind of a whole governed by a form of the kind that you get in Timaeus, for instance, um, you instead have void and atoms. And there's no kind of limit on what the atoms can do except physical laws. And this is where you get, for instance, a plurality of worlds, um, which is you know very similar to the kind of uh, multiversal stuff we were talking about earlier. It's where you get the, you know, it's it's not fair to accuse Epicurus of, of hedonism in the way that some of his contemporaries did, but it is where you get the kind of gentlemanly, the best of life is kind of retiring to the garden and engaging in erudite conversation and seeking hedone, pleasure, right? Uh, the sort of uh, freedom from cares, autorexia. Um, and this notion, you know, John Adams in a letter says that all of our philosophers are uh, pigs from the sty of, of Epicurus. Um, <laughs> and, and this is, um, you know, that obviously something must have happened because in the medieval era, everybody's kind of an Aristotelian, but speaking very, very broadly. Um, and then it's really, it is the scientific revolution that makes atomism sort of appealing again. There were atomists, you know, before Galileo, before Copernicus, but um, they, in many, you know, it was, it was a condemned idea. It was a, it was a heretical notion that the world could be infinite and, and would be kind of governed by random flow. Um, but, you know, with people like Descartes, with sort of the, the later philosophers of the, uh, of, of the scientific revolution, um, you do get atomism back in vogue again. Again, um, and it's easy to see why the universe has suddenly gotten way, way bigger. We forget that we think about Galileo as just like, oh, the, the earth is now revolving around the sun. But a lot of other things also happen, like the stars are a lot farther away than they ever were before. Um, and suddenly the universe just doesn't quite seem to hang together in, in the same way. And so, you know, I think that this we are kind of all Epicureans now, even though we don't read Epicurus as, as much. And uh, as I argue in the book, Epicureanism still has all the same philosophical problems. It didn't get mm. any better as a philosophy. It's just it's become kind of attractive to people. Yeah, I, I'm wondering because at least as as it was taught to me, again, at kind of a very basic level, you know, Stoicism yeah. and Epicureanism were kind of like the two competing, 
you know, philosophies of their time. Yep. And is there an inheritor today of Stoicism? I was trying to think through myself what it might be. And I was like, maybe kind of the Nietzschean look at mm. the world as it is and, and don't flinch back. Or, or maybe it's kind of an existentialist in that similar vein. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's such a fascinating question. I mean, there would be a version of this. Where some people might answer, well, Stoicism is the inheritor of Stoicism today. Yeah. I mean, Stoicism is very, very popular. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's actually having a resurgence. And I think it's having a resurgence because everybody's an Epicurean. Uh, there's sort of people are grabbing on to Stoicism as like, a, you know, you, you get guys like Ryan Holiday writing bestsellers, just teaching basic Stoic ethics, you know, yeah. um, and uh, which is not a knock, by the way. It's just to say, like, that's, you know, something that a lot of people are getting into um, but actually, I think that's kind of an antiquarian project. And what we would really want, if we wanted to answer your question fully, we would want something that does for Stoicism what modern atomism does for Epicureanism, that is, updates it, makes it look like a cutting edge philosophy. And maybe the answer then to that is like digital Gnosticism, like some kind of digital spiritualism that says like we are these sparks or spirits trapped in these clay jars and we're sort of moving toward, uh, you know, a, a techno future. Um, I, 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 that there wouldn't be the same parallels between that and stoicism, but it, it would kind of offer a competing because people find that appealing, I think for the same reason, which is like, at least there's a trajectory there rather than just this random stasis and, and right. atomic flow. I mean, you've written this book, How to Save the West. Is the West a victim of its own success? I think that's something that people kind of think about a lot, but, you know, especially, you know, the rise of Marxism and its current incarnation, which is so anti-Western, and yet it is itself such like an intrinsically Western view. To kind of start wrapping this conversation up, how do you view that? I mean, in light of this book. Sure. I mean, I would say... Marxism comes under heavy fire in this book. There's yeah. no two <laughs> ways around it, um, and I think uh, it's deserved. I, I, you know, I, I, I have all the problems with all the problems that I articulate with Marxism. I, I genuinely think are serious problems. All of that having been said, one of the things I say in the introduction is, is Marxism is a Western idea, right? Um, and it arises just as you know David Hume does, just as uh, the a certain form of atheism, just as Epicureanism does, out of this tradition. And that shows us a couple things. First of all, it shows us that believing in the Western canon and the Western tradition does not mean sort of subscribing to a dogma uh, any more than it means coming from a particular country or particular, you know, time. Um, and so it is possible to criticize strands of Western thought from within the Western tradition, in part because debate and discussion is one of the kind of principles that you might say animates the whole thing. Um, and so for that reason, as I say in the book, when I criticize somebody like Marx, I criticize him as one Westerner to another. I think that the the kind of threads of our tradition and, and the, the direction of those currents that you were describing, they, they point in a better and, and a different way. Um, and one kind of conversation that I initiate in the book is between Marx and Aristotle, um, that in the politics, Aristotle has this wonderful um, response to Plato's idea of, of koinonia, of community, which is a kind of proto-communism and that it involves holding wives and children together, uh, at least among the elite, and it involves holding property together, not having any private property. And Aristotle says, you know, if you take a, a drop of wine and you drop it in a jar of water, you don't get a jar of wine. You get a jar of water with a very, very weak wine flavor. And mm. and love is like that. Mm. Um, you, if, you, if you dissolve the bonds of property and local attachment um, into a kind of community, a communism of ownership, you don't end up with a utopia. You end up with a dilution of the attachments that make civilization work. Um, and so from the perspective of a Westerner who wants, in some broad sense, some abstract sense wants the same things Marx wants, right? Want I want justice. I, I you know I, I I hope that I you know I'm aiming towards the good in uh, political life. Um, in the in the closing chapters of the book, I just argue that to get those things, um, the ideal is not to think 
bigger and more diffuse, but smaller and uh, more attached. A true koinonia, a true community is individualist, but it's also communitarian. That is to say, it has to do with politike philia, the love that obtains between neighbors and, and fellow citizens. And if there's one thing that I really think is like how to save the West in the immediate political sense, it's it's that. It's love as the foundation of all politics. Wow. That is just a, such a great statement. To wrap this interview up, um, I have been rereading uh, C.S. Lewis's Discarded Image, which for the listeners mm. who don't know is kind of his textbook on uh, medieval thought. And there's this amazing passage from it that reminded me so much of your book. Um, and I'll read it and you can end us with a, with a short comment on it. But he says, uh, the nearest we get to a widespread philosophy of history in the Middle Ages is the frequent assertion that things were once better than they were now. As read in Wolfstan's sermon, the world hurries on and speeds to its end. Thus, for men's sins, it must worsen day by day. Yet I do not find that in reading either chronicle or romance, we really get an impression of gloom. The emphasis usually falls on the past splendor rather than on subsequent decline. Medieval and 19th century man agreed that their present was no very admirable age, not to be compared, said one, with the glory that was, not to be compared, said the other, with the glory that is still to come. The odd thing is that the first view seems to have bred on the whole a more cheerful temper. So mm. I, to me, that seemed quite relevant uh, to, you know, to your view on kind of the positivity that, that we can bring by trying to save the West. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm going to take that away and meditate on it. I mean, <laughs> I, um, the Lewis, among other things, was the great poet of nostalgia. And I don't yeah. mean that in the sense of he wrote verse about it, but he was, he was an expositor of what nostalgia means. And I don't think it's an accident that ours is an age famously of nostalgia, of looking back to childhood and kind of yearning after something lost, right? Um, and the other quote that always comes back to mind, and maybe what I'll end up doing is just quoting something back at you after you <laughs> quoted me. Um, that's Wordsworth's ode, uh, Intimations of Immortality mm. from Recollections of Early Boyhood. I may be getting that title wrong, but that's that's the gist of it. And that passage, he has this wonderful line, you know, our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. Uh, and uh, I'll paraphrase, but the soul that travels with us, our life star hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God who is our home. And the sense that we have, which is very powerful and goes back at least to Tacitus, whom I quote at the beginning of the book, you know, that everything is was better in some past time. Um, if it's taken literally as a statement about the past, it is a kind of sentimentalism that doesn't really help us. But if understood for what it is, which is, I think, an, an intuition um, that behind us and before us, there is something greater than what we currently live through, and that our task is to invest and imbue the present with the glory that we attach to the past, then I think we're really cooking with gas because we're on to something profound about uh, the, what the tradition is what its role is in our lives. It's not to lock us in some past state. It's not to send us back to the dark ages or the stone ages or whatever. It's to thread us through in a connection of all human life to our ancestors and to what we are, which is embodied souls made in the image of God and uh, headed for a greater place. Wow. Thank you so much, Spencer. What an amazing note to end on. Um, everyone, his book is How to Save the West. It'll be linked in the show notes. Um, you should absolutely go check it out. And the podcast, which he just finished up, Young Heretics. I've been listening to a lot of episodes recently. Uh, it's really, really excellent stuff on some of the more specifics of the text that we've talked about. So thank you so much, Spencer. Thank you, Annika. It's been such a pleasure. Well, there you have it, Madisonians, Dr. Spencer Clavin on how to save the West, ancient wisdom for five modern crises. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. The link to the book is in the show notes, as well as links to other resources about some of the other books and ideas that we discussed over the course of this podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion, we would really appreciate any and all five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is you use. It really does make a really big difference to us. And to find out more about the Madison program, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or our website, jmp.princeton.edu. There's tons of great opportunities to either come learn with us over the summer there or see some of the lectures that we host on Princeton's campus. So please do go ahead and check it out. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
and we'll catch you next time here on Madison's Notes. Thank you.